It's 6 o'clock on a rather chilly Wednesday evening here in New York, and actually throughout America. Good evening. It's the Mark Riley Show here on the Progressive Radio Network, and uh, I'm really glad to be here. Jason Taubenfeld keeping us on the case as per usual. Uh, Jason, you know, I've been wrestling with this thing, this nagging thing in the back of my head. Uh, since, since actually Thursday last week, because the situation in Ferguson, Missouri, uh, is really starting to get on my nerves. Okay. Mainly because it forces me to separate what I think is right and ought to be done from what I believe may not be right, but will most likely be done. And one of the things that, that, that kind of frightens me a little bit is that police departments all over America, they're breaking out all of that stuff that the government gave them, the feds, you know, tanks and anti-personnel carriers and all this stuff, uh, which supposedly they keep to repel a terror threat. And in some cases, it's legit. But, you know, I, I can see the headlines now. You know, police in Anchorage, Alaska. Girding for the absolute worst as they wait for the decision from Ferguson, Missouri. Police in Casper, Wyoming are in high alert because they're afraid that people will take to the streets in the wake of this decision. First, let me say, and this is, Jason, I got to be honest with you, this is what I wrestled with, all right? They might as well start protesting now, okay? Because they're not going to indict this guy. All right. And again, that's the gap between what I wish I could say and what my experience, and I've been around for a minute, tells me will happen. Now, I could be wrong. Maybe they will indict him. I doubt seriously they convict him if they do. But my gut tells me that they won't indict him. They've already made the decision and they're just waiting for the right time to drop it. Like maybe Thanksgiving when people are watching football on TV or something. They're going to wait till what they see as the most opportune moment from a law enforcement perspective. When you see a headline that says, FBI warns Ferguson grand jury decision, quote, will likely lead to violence. What, they got tea leaves at the FBI or something? They got a crystal ball? So they know violence will likely happen? nonsense and and this particular article by the way says and and one of the things that uh, let me let me not trip over myself and, and order my thoughts here so i'm not all over the place about a week and a half two weeks ago media reports made it sound like the grand jury decision was imminent could be coming in a couple of days and then suddenly it didn't come and here we are I guess this is the end of mid-November, all right, heading into late November. And now, you know, the officials are saying, the officials in Ferguson are saying the decision will come in mid to late November, which is like now. So uh, the FBI is saying that there are specific tactics that could be utilized by extreme protesters, including violence against state or federal authorities. They're also very nervous about hackers. They're nervous that hackers will attack, that's cyber attack, the powers that be. The governor of Missouri, Jay Nixon, who, by the way, just yesterday, I believe, presided over the execution of a guy, declared a state of emergency, activated the National Guard. That's like, you know, the, what, if they declare a state of emergency, if they activate the National Guard, do they seriously want anybody to believe that they're actually going to indict Darren Wilson? Do they think people will take to the streets if he is indicted? 
Of course not. They know now they're not going to indict this guy. They know it. I know it. Uh, and again, I can. I guess I have to do a little caveat. I could be wrong, but I don't think I am. I genuinely do not think I am. And the criminal justice system, which for years, certainly throughout my radio career, going back to 1972, when a 12-year-old kid got gunned down here in New York City, and I can recite your chapter and verse in New York, but I'm not going to. If you look at uprisings, what they call euphemistically riots across America, going back to the middle of the last century, even earlier than that, one of the common points you will find is a negative interaction between someone in a black community and the cops. And, and, you know, you don't have to believe me. Look it up. Read it for yourself. Riots in this country, in the good old USA, are you certainly riots in black communities, are usually triggered by a negative interaction, whether it be a shooting, rumors of a shooting, which happened back in the 1930s, I think, mid-1930s, wherever, of a black man by a white cop. And in some cases, a black man by a black cop. But most often, a black man by a white cop. And in many of these cases, the individual was not armed. Michael Brown joins a long, long, long list. And I'm sure that there are people who are holding out hope. His family, his attorneys, others, the NAACP, others. I mean, there are people who are seeking justice here who are probably holding out hope that this guy is going to be indicted. I'm not one of them. I would love to see justice done here, which would mean at least a trial. But I don't think it's going to happen. And, you know, I I may have said this once before, but I'll say it again. In uh, when the Sean Bell case was coming to its conclusion. And the jury was out. And Wendy Williams, who was still on the radio then, asked me to come on the air. And she said, well, what do you think is going to happen? I said, Wendy, I hate to tell you this, but the cops are going to walk. They're not convicting these people. And, you know, some other people in the room, how can you say? Just my experience. They're not convicting these cops. They didn't convict them. In this case, it's not going to get that far. They're not going to indict Darren Wilson. And by the way, if they don't, he can go try and get his gig back. There's a 50-50. He may be patrolling the streets of Ferguson if he gets his job back. Now, i got to be honest with you. If he's got any sense, he won't. But, hey, stranger things have happened. I, again, toyed with, not toyed with, wrestled with. How I was going to put this, because I don't like to put myself in a position where, you know, where I would say, hey, or or somebody would say about me, hey, he incited this or he incited that or he urged people on to do this. I don't do that. I urge people. I I incite people to think. (laughs) That's what I try to do anyway. But, Jason, I'm going to say it. All right. When I first started thinking seriously about what I was going to say on the air here, the first thing I said was, well, go ahead and riot because they're not going to they're not going to indict this guy. But that would have been. uh, I guess maybe crossing a line somewhere, at least in my own head. Because I don't want to say to people, go ahead and riot. Riots are serious things. Uprisings are serious. People get hurt. People get killed. Those aren't rubber bullets in the main that these cops are going to use on people. And, you know, they'll shoot somebody down and then say the person was a terrorist. Without actually knowing whether the person was a terrorist. But they'll do it. Trust me, they will do it. We got a bunch of other things to talk about this wonderful evening. 
in about five minutes or so, you know, the president's going to be on TV tomorrow night to talk about the executive actions he's going to take with regard to immigration. So we have got a fabled immigration attorney and former mayor of Englewood, New Jersey, who's going to be joining us. His dad defended John Lennon when they tried to deport him. So Michael Wilds knows what he's talking about. As a matter of fact, he just got finished teaching a class. So in about five minutes, we'll talk to him. But in that five minutes, I just want to relate a a story that kind of impacted me personally because I, I you know went through the New York Times the other day and saw a story about this particular place. We were in, my wife, daughter, and I were in Colorado a couple weeks back. Boulder, my my daughter wanted to see the University of Colorado and, you know, got into it. Really nice, lovely, lovely place. Lovely people in Boulder, Colorado. There was a restaurant in Boulder, which we almost ate dinner in, but then something happened and we went someplace else. And it wasn't because of the name of the place, but it's called Illegal Pete's. Now, yeah, the owner of the place, whose name happens to be Pete Turner, said he named it when, and by the way, the place is like, uh, there's, there's a chain of them, but the first one opened like 20 years ago. And he said it's a combination of the name of a bar that he read about in a novel and his own dad, whose name was also Pete, apparently, and had nothing to do with undocumented immigration. Nothing. Wasn't an issue when he called it illegal Pete's. Well, it is now. I remember reading in uh, online, I guess it was, one of the, uh, maybe it was the Denver Post. And they said that there was this big brouhaha because uh, Pete Turner was opening a new illegal pizza, I think in Fort Collins, Colorado. And the people there wanted him not just to change the name of the one that was opening up, but change the name of all of the illegal Pete's restaurants. And again, we did not not eat there because of the name of the place. I think it was it may have been because it was crowded that particular night. And by the way, when we were in Colorado, the temperature was like 70 degrees in the middle of the day. Two days after we left, it was five. So go figure the weather right about now. But his father, who's passed away, apparently had an illegal streak a rebellious streak. And at the time, illegal was just like illegal. Had nothing to do with illegal, so-called illegal immigration. None of that. But now many immigration advocates banded together with an organization called Race Forward. And Race Forward had, had actually done a campaign called Ban the I-Word. And they want Pete Turner to change the name of Illegal Pete's. Now, I got to tell you, uh, I'm siding with Pete Turner on this. There was no intent to stain undocumented immigrants by calling this place Illegal Pete's. It had nothing to do with that whatsoever. The name of the place is Illegal Pete's, not Illegal Immigrants. If it was Illegal Immigrants, I'd be the first one to say, yeah. People need to protest. That's not the name of the place. And in point of fact, uh, Pete Turner, the guy who owns the joint, supports the president's immigration policy. <laughs> okay. So he's not. So, and, and he has been troubled by the fact that there are some people out in, uh, in, in Colorado who support the name Illegal Pete's because they don't like undocumented immigrants, which, of course, is absurd. But I'm going with this guy, Pete Turner. Let him keep calling it illegal. Pete had nothing to do with immigration. Nothing. And, you know, when a place has a 20-year history, unless these... No, I'm not going to get into the financial part because they'd have to change the signage. They'd have to change everything. It's going to cost money. But that's not the reason why he should keep it. He should keep it because that's the name of the place and that's the name he chose. And it's, I don't believe it's a slur on undocumented immigrants. I just don't. And I don't think it's going to lead people in Colorado, or for that matter, anywhere else, to jump up and say, okay, since it's illegal Pete's, I guess it's okay 
to call undocumented workers illegal immigrants. See, it, 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 I don't believe that. I just do not believe that. And again, we're keeping the program for now on the topic of immigration because President Barack Obama is going to be speaking to the nation tomorrow evening about his policies, his changed policies on, on that is, undocumented immigration. And joining us is a recognized expert on immigration. He's a former mayor of Englewood, New Jersey. He is attorney Michael Wiles. Counselor, how you doing? Okay, my friend, how are you? I'm doing great, man. How you been? I see you in the gym every Thanks now so. and then. <laughs> <laughs> I'm usually walking my wife into the gym. If it was me, I would be a lot more fit than I actually am. <laughs> but it's, uh, it's always a pleasure to hear uh, you and to join your audience. I very much appreciate you took the time. Let me start out by asking you, uh, from what you've heard about what the president's planning to do, uh, are you in favor of it? And can you kind of explain it a little bit for our audience that may not know? Not a problem. The president of the United States announced that tomorrow night at 8 o'clock in the White House, he's going to put together a plan where he's going to show how he's going to exercise his executive authority and prosecutorial discretion in the immigration space. Then on Friday, he's going to go to a school in Nevada where he had laid out originally some plans years ago in that regard. The president is not making laws. He's the president. He's supposed to execute on laws. It's up to Congress. But with the deafening silence in Washington, and this president, mind you, who has deported more people than any other president in our nation's history, mm-hmm. whether it's a guilt or it's a, a, an identification that we have a broken immigration system, has now reckoned with the fact that he cannot allow the system to go on. And then the logjam and the traffic in Washington... With this Congress, given a new trust and its inability to come to the table, it's important for this nation, in this lawyer's eyes, for this president to be patted on the back. And the impetus then will have to be placed back in Congress where our laws are made for them to comprehensively fix this broken system. The president effectively tomorrow night is going to say, look, I'm not going after parents and children. I'm not going after families where their children want to serve in our military. We don't have enough guns, badges, handcuffs, detention centers, and beds to house, detain, and deport 11 million people. And since they're so ingrained into our societies, since we've had a political band-aid placed in every immigration problem we've had in the last 100 years, I'm going to wait for Congress to do the right thing. In the meantime, I'm going to do the right thing. I'm going to make sure we put resources in against drugsters and mobsters and racketeers. But when it comes to family members that have children here, and they may be unlawfully, mm-hmm. we're not going to create anchor babies. We're going to give them the entitlement, the gentleman, the gentle lady, ability to continue this diamond in the rough, this great experiment in democracy in America. And I believe wholeheartedly that this president is following a very strong legacy of other presidents uh, before him. And tomorrow night is monumental. But it's also a snapshot of a deterioration of a dialogue between the United States president and our chambers of Congress that Mm -hmm. they can't come to realization together. But at least somebody's taking something because, simply put, the Talmud in the Babylonian days, in the Jewish faith, says in Hebrew, silence is as if you took action. And the deafening silence in Washington is completely unacceptable. Counselor, let me ask you this. Um, there are some, and, and as you point out, these, many of these people are in Congress, who say the president is going too far with the, the proposed changes he's looking to make. How do you answer that, 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 that he's exceeding his authority? The president is the executive arm of our government. He has the discretion, and, and, and it's a personal um, kind of journey I can describe where that discretion emanates, but he has the discretion to execute on laws. He is constitutionally protected in the execution of these laws, and the jurisprudence of this came out of a case my father handled personally. Mm-hmm. When John Lennon was being deported from the United States in the 1970s, when the Nixon administration had placed him on an enemies list, it was my father who was enlisted by Yoko and John at the time to correct the injustice that was done. He was selectively prosecuted because of the influence he had against Vietnam, and this is pre-Watergate, where Nixon, in his paranoia, was trying to create enemies lists, and J. Edgar Hoover and all these other people were doing dastardly things. My father stepped up 
and through the Freedom of Information Act and some strenuous litigation in federal courts, proved that there were 1,843 instances where the government deferred taking action with the immigration authority, the executive branch of our government, and the president who heads that, actually has a legacy of allowing drugsters and mobsters and murderers to remain in America for a greater good. That greater good is not forgiveness for their crime, but a redirection of resources so that we don't waste our time, efforts, and money on people that really cannot be removed and really should be put into the system. Imagine this. Right now, whoever's listening to this should understand a few things. We've had a national debate on the rights of aliens to have driver's licenses. Mm -hmm. When an alien can actually get onto an airplane, the very instrumentality of the World Trade Center, with an expired passport, and travel from state to state without the same political uh, crisis and drama. We have a broken system that is not comprehensively meeting our homeland or our labor needs. And last I checked, we're not going to get the blueberries picked in Georgia or the beds turned down in our hospitality corridors or the meals put out by restaurateurs in our nation without all hands on deck. And we need help. This economy, this homeland, 13 years after these attacks, still remains as vulnerable as we did, sadly. And part of it is this unidentified mass amount of people from 11 million to 20 million people that are not given the dignity of being brought into the system. The mayor of New York has recognized this. He's coming out now with a municipal ID that will give them the privilege of opening up bank accounts. They'll have a free year of being able to use city services. We want people like that in our society, inculcating. We want them to be able to go to police chiefs and report crime and domestic violence. We don't want to force a second culture. We were founded by fathers and mothers who felt that this country could stand for not only hospitality, but entrepreneurship, the greatest risk takers, the people that will employ Americans, the people who have built the strongest patents on Wall Street for Google, for you know Windows, and for mm -hmm. all these other applications are foreign nationals, foreign students. And yes, I am calling you right now from Cardoza Law School, where I teach business immigration law. Oh, wow. I'm sitting, I'm sitting here in a lobby. I'm now teaching my fourth year, where I'm teaching law students how to onboard people into the workforce, because we shoot ourselves in the foot when we take foreign students and we don't give them a direct path into our workforce, and we force them effectively to take the education that they learn, the very valuable tuition dollars paid to America's institutions, and then the fruit of that tree is, is developed in another nation. Foolish. Absolutely. Not within, not within the legacy of this nation. Our guest is immigration attorney and an expert immigration attorney, former mayor of Englewood, New Jersey, Mr. Michael Wilde. Uh, counselor, uh, there are those, for example, there was an article in today's New York Times that says that whatever the president does tomorrow, undocumented immigrants will not be able to access the American health care system under the Affordable Care Act. Do you agree with that or disagree? I'm not a health care expert. I can tell you that the last cadre of personalities that were brought into the system were given the dignity of work authorization, and they have the availability of what the law provides. Whether they should or shouldn't, the bottom line is there will be a group of society that will now have the right to work, to buy, and to have the same headaches as Americans, to pay taxes and to pay for health care. Mm -hmm. We can only improve ourselves and we can only improve the health and the condition of Americans when we take day laborers mustering on street corners or the staffing conditions in our urban centers where landlords and tenants create illegal tendencies, putting first responders in harm's way and making a more healthy circumstance. And that is left for another Congress and another president to debate the next generation. But the real question is this. What the president effectively is going to do tomorrow is an ace bandage. It's not a crutch. It's not a permanent fix. And we still have a broken system. We have Cubans who can get a green card when they hit dry land after a year, and Haitians that can still be interdicted in international waters. This is not a country that recognizes the value of Fashion Week, such that it issues its fashion visas and a schedule in a calendar that doesn't mesh the fashion industry. <laughs> Canada, Australia, other Western countries have point-based systems because they realize that some of the most talented people who are entrepreneurs have never set a day in college or a university. And we have to think out of the box in the new normal 
when we see with the advent of social media and globalization the kinds of challenges that we're going to face when we don't have an immigration system that grows properly. The last time it was revamped was when we had a robust economy under a Republican president who even tried that dastardly word. It was President Reagan who had yes. the audacity and the judgment, truthfully, and the presence of mind to give an amnesty. So we've been putting band-aids on this problem, and we'll continue to watch this. And tomorrow night is yet another opportunity. But this president, lame duck or not, with a new Republican Congress or not, is stepping up and doing the righteous. Now, uh, they're talking about the Congress, or some members of Congress, I can't say all, but certainly some Republicans, are talking about trying to cut off funding uh, for President Obama's initiative. Uh, do you think that is a, a, stra- a workable strategy? Do you think it's a winning strategy for Republicans? I, I took pride in my being a Jew, and I'll call from the, biblical, the Bible again. You know, the pharaohs can take away the straw, and the, and the bricks still have to be uh, built. Um, you know, I don't know what this Congress will accomplish by criticizing this president. And I don't know when the president has the authority and they can't find a law firm in Washington to challenge him in a court system, and taking away the financial uh, part of this is going to help. You know, you, what are the costs to our society? You have to make a plastic card and get a good inventory of everybody. And then the last I checked, there's about $15 billion worth of Social Security earnings that come in from the illegal, undocumented community anyway, and they cost about a billion dollars. So it's win and found money for us. And if they don't have the judgment to spend money to make more money, to do the right thing, and then to hold back the dollars so they can play the tough uh, you know, cowboy to their constituents, um, people will know better. I, unless you're an American Indian, all truth, we all want to go back to a lawful immigration system. We don't want porous borders, and we want a comprehensive plan that will allow our economy to, to still compete against others and not have ourselves marginalized, and like I said, foreign students and other people seeking employment elsewhere when they're educated in our halls. Hmm, Important point. Final quick question. Um, There was talk, uh, and it wasn't that long ago, uh, that Michael Wiles himself had ambitions to go to the very Congress that you're talking (laughs) about here. Uh, You still still have the fire in the belly? You still thinking about that, or are you uh, retired completely from politics? Um, I, my little one retired me when she said, Daddy, take off your shoes. I was a mayor at the time in uh, New Jersey. And she said, you know, I said, why should I take off my shoes, sweetheart? She goes, well, you know, if you're running for mayor with your shoes on, maybe if you took your shoes off and spent a little time with me, you don't have to run so much. So I, I literally, I, I threw in the towel at that point. I know I have a congressional campaign, Wild for Congress, and I've been slowly trying to build it up over time. And as my children get older and the firm is, now, you know, in strong hands due to not only my dad, who, thank God, is still practicing, and the extraordinary, uh, you know, scholarship of our talented staff, I still toy with the notion. The process of getting into public office is a debilitating one. But oh, yeah. In all, in all truth, the trust given to you and the capability of doing things that are important for our nation really presents uh, still, you know, to me, albeit I'm turning 50 next week. Uh, Congratulations. Thank you. Something that has always kept me young. And it's my personal prayer to earn that trust. And if I have it, and if there is an opportunity, you can bet your bottom dollar I'm going to grab it. But it will not be at the expense of my family. Uh, And not when I don't represent the interests of a community. And I have to tell you that I've seen the dialogue deteriorate in the political communications, not only in the county, in the state that I live in, New Jersey, but also nationwide. And it asks you a question whether or not, one, is there a one, they ask in a church, is there one that can actually fix the system? And I refuse to not leave my children the example of at least trying to make it better. And, you know, I do that every day to the tune of a few hundred people a month in our mm-hmm. law firm, but I can do it to the tune of millions if my heart's in the right place. So, yes, I do toy with the fact. And it's because of people like you and others that I actually have to get there. Now, if you can stand up to my mother-in-law and my wife and help me get the other part of the way, I'd be obliged to. Right. Attorney Michael Wiles, always great to talk with you. Thanks so much for joining us. God bless you and all your listeners. You take care. Thank you, sir. He is Michael Wiles. He's the former mayor of Englewood, New Jersey, and an expert 
on immigration law. As you mentioned, as you heard him mention, that is, uh, he just finished teaching a class at the Cardoza Law School right here in the city of New York. It's 630 at the bottom of the hour. Jason, can we take a quick break? And then we'll open up the phones because we got a lot of other stuff to talk about now. Don't get me wrong. Uh, we can talk about illegal peats. We can talk about undocumented workers. We can talk about Ferguson. 888-874-4888 is our number. 29 minutes before the hour of 7 o'clock. We got about a half hour left. We're going to make the absolute most of it. Uh, Turning to issues local a bit, the embattled chief of staff to First Lady Shirlane McRae has taken a leave of absence. That would be Rachel Nordlinger. Most of you probably know that. Um, I met Rachel when she was an intern at the radio station I worked for many, many moons ago. I don't want to make her too old, but she was a kid back then. And she has taken it on the chin uh, and in the jaw and in a bunch of other places, uh, mainly because of her closeness to the Reverend Al Sharpton. Now, some people are going to say, well, wait a minute now. She didn't do this and she didn't do that. She didn't, you know, disclose uh, that her killer boyfriend was living with her uh, in New Jersey and her son, who uh, apparently was the reason why she was allowed to get a waiver to live in New Jersey, wasn't as sick as everybody said he was. There's a whole bunch of stuff that people will dredge up to say why. And and, uh, I I just saw a a poll and we'll get to some of the other poll results shortly. But uh, I just saw a poll said uh, a majority of New Yorkers, a pretty strong majority, don't think that the first lady of the city needs a chief of staff. Now, mind you, first ladies have had chiefs of staff for a while. I know uh, a woman who used to be the chief of staff to uh, uh, first lady Joyce Dinkins when Mayor David Dinkins was in Gracie Mansion. So this is not unheard of. It's not new. What's different is that A, Shalane McRae involves herself to some level, in policy. And the police unions in this town do not like that. They don't like that, and they don't like the mayor's uh, perceived closeness to the Reverend Al Sharpton, who, by the way, has been getting dragged through the mud just like Rachel Nordlinger. You know, they're bringing up all this stuff about his taxes, which he spoke to earlier today, as a matter of fact. But be that as it may, I said this a few weeks ago when the Rachel Nordlinger brouhaha first came up. This is some people's way of trying to sever the ties between this mayor and Reverend Sharpton, who, by the way, told Rachel Nordlinger, hey, you want to come back and work for me at the National Action Network? Come on. You see, Uh, and, and, you know, Rachel is a very, very intelligent person. And was, in my judgment, an asset to the de Blasio administration. But that didn't matter to anybody. And and by the way, uh, maybe committed a few sins of omission. But what people seem to be criticizing her for was her taste in men and the fact that her son got busted. Now, I am very, very, very skeptical about the circumstances around which her son got busted. He was uptown, I think, like around 164th Street, someplace in the vestibule of an apartment building. It went from he was with some people who were allegedly drinking and smoking weed to he was drinking and smoking weed. 
That always makes me skeptical in the extreme. But uh, the city, and this is just how I'm going to leave this, the city is not any better off because Rachel Nordlinger is not in government right about now. Period. End of story. Now, uh, a small victory, perhaps a temporary victory, but a victory nonetheless, Jason. The Senate, by a single vote, defeated a bill to authorize construction of the Keystone XL oil pipeline, delivering a body blow to, not Republicans, but the Democratic Senator Mary Landro from Louisiana who had been calling people and wearing out her cell phone minutes, trying to convince at least a couple of Democrats to get on board with this thing, the Keystone XL pipeline. Now, I'm no oil expert, okay? Oil is something that goes in your car, as far as I'm concerned. But, A, I do know that this pipeline is not benefiting this country. This pipeline is running from Canada through this country down to... Mary Landro's state, and then they're exporting the oil. They ain't using it here. They may use some of it here, but they're exporting most of it. It's not like they got all kinds of little spigots where people can go and t- turn turn on a tap and get them some oil in this country. And, and, and I have to double-check whether this was still true. But I know that there were some indigenous people that were highly upset that the pipeline would disrupt and, as far as they were concerned, desecrate some of their sacred lands. And as badly as we have treated indigenous people in this country, we cannot afford to ignore that. Now, some people may. Some people might just say, eh, psh. Now, here's the straight skinny, okay, because they needed 60 votes. And, you know, it wasn't that long ago I was one of those that was saying, why do they need 60? Why can't they get a straight majority? Well, in this case, 60 turned out to be okay. (laughs) All right, I'm not going to lie. 13 Democrats voted with Mary Landro to authorize the Keystone Pipeline. Outgoing Senators Mark Begich, Kay Hagan, Mark Pryor, John Walsh. That's some of them. Uh, Michael Bennett of Colorado, Tom Carper of Delaware, Bob Casey, Pennsylvania, Joe Donnelly, Indiana, Heidi Heitkamp, North North Dakota, Joe Manchin, West Virginia, Claire McCaskill, Missouri, John Tester, Montana, and Mark Warner of Virginia. Now, the outgoing people, Beggage, Hagen, Pryor, Walsh, these are people who have one thing in common. They put as much distance between themselves and Barack Obama as possible during this last election cycle. Oh, no, 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 don't come here. Or if the president did come to their home state, they had a prior engagement or they made sure they were out of state. And the fact that these people voted for the pipeline says to me they didn't learn nothing. Nothing. Because I don't, I, I just, I don't have uh, a logical, valid reason why this thing needs to be vote, uh, needs to be built. For what? It's not, and see, the thing is, first of all, it's not really about reducing carbon emissions. That's number one. Number two, uh... You know, it, it, it's it's this whole oil thing, man. Why do we have to be so addicted to oil? And in this case, I don't think, you know, I could be wrong about this, but I don't think this oil is for us. I remember doing a program with somebody who said, no, nah, no, nah, this thing is running all the way to Louisiana because they're going to export this oil out of the ports in the southern part of, of the state of Louisiana. Not a Republican say it'll see the Republicans will say that anything that will destroy the environment will create jobs. I'm beginning to think they would think a nuclear weapon would be a good idea because it would create jobs. 
Now, the pipeline, by the way, has been delayed for six years. It's under review at the State Department. It's kind of like fracking here in New York, <laughs> you know. It's like, well, uh, well, we'll we'll decide when we get around to it. Even the president's kind of been a little wishy-washy on the pipeline, to be honest with you. Just kill the bad boy. We don't need it. We don't need it. I just read earlier today, in, of all things, the Wall Street Journal. Yes, I do read it. Uh, Toyota is getting ready to put out some kind of vehicle. Don't need no stinking gas. No, it's not a hybrid. I forgot what's it, it actually is. I, maybe it's all electric, a plug-in kind of thing. Because it's, it, it's apparently being built to compete with the Nissan Leaf and the Tesla. So it's probably all electric. Isn't that the smart thing to do? Develop batteries and develop systems that will allow these things to go as far as gasoline-powered vehicles? I can't believe that this country is incapable of that. In point of fact, I could have sworn I read somewhere that it's already been done, that they had some kids that built experimental cars. They got five zillion miles to whatever, you know, between charges or whatever, because it's not to the gallon because they don't use gas. And even if they do use gas, they have some fuel-efficient vehicles in some of these colleges knock your socks off. How come we can't focus on that instead of a pipeline that spits on our indigenous and, by and large, is not going to help us that much? I don't know where the jobs growth is going to come from. What, offloading the oil and putting it on tankers? I mean, maybe I'm blowing smoke. Maybe I don't know what I'm talking about. Maybe this will be the biggest boon to the American economy since World War II. I doubt it. I seriously, seriously doubt it. But, hey, you know what? That's just me. 888-874-4888 is our number. Any of you just want to call in, any of you just want to talk about anything, give a call. Give a call. Now, uh, there's a senator in what, you know, this this whole GOP takeover thing starting to get on my nerves, okay? Uh, In January, Republican Senator Ron Johnson will be taking over as chair of the Senate Homeland Security and Government Affairs Committee. Now, that committee oversees the federal workforce and the entire Postal Service. Now, I'm not one to go by party labels and say, well, he's a Republican. He must be <laughs> But he's bad. This is a guy who said that the PO, the PO should go through a bankruptcy process that would result in a downsized private corporation that would lose the benefits of government oversight and regulation. And it would also, by the way, allow this new downsized privatized postal service to terminate or substantially modify its contracts, including its collective bargaining agreements with postal unions. I don't like that at all. You know, yo, how dare you? First of all, uh, I think it's going to take more than a wave of Ron Johnson's magic wand to make this stuff happen. See, cause there, there's some, uh, federal law that is really protective of the Postal Service in terms of, you know, keeping it, they don't have to keep it exactly the way it is, but they can't just, turn you know, turn it into uh, a male equivalent of a 401k because <laughs> you think that's a good idea. But they want to get rid of public jobs, folks. And they see the postal unions as public workers. This is not something that is peculiar to or limited to the Postal Service. All across this country, even as they reap profits from the pension funds of public workers, and trust me, they do, all these middlemen and whatnot, even as they make money off public workers, they want to get rid of public workers. 
They don't like the concept of public workers. Some of them don't even like the concept of the minimum wage. Well, let them negotiate with the employer. Yeah, that works. This is where this country is headed if people can't get their act together. All right? And again, I'm not casting blame for this last election. The blame would lie in not organizing properly for the next election. That's where the blame would lie. You know, people sitting around crying in there, oh, no, it's because of that. No, no, not because of Shut up. Get up. Stand up. To quote Robert Nesta Marley, O.M. Stand up for what you believe in. And I got to be honest with you. You need to believe in the Postal Service. Part of the reason why the Postal Service is hemorrhaging money is because today's postal workers are paying into uh, a fund for their grandkids who might end up working there. And great-grandkids. I forgot how far ahead they, but they did that in 2006. I think it's like 75 years down the road they're paying for. And if they weren't, Postal Service wouldn't be in that bad shape. If they lifted some of the regulations that limit what the Postal Service can actually do, a lot of this would change, too. But, you know, that'd be too much like the right thing to do. Moving right along, uh, the Quinnipiac University pollsters, spokesperson of whom Mickey Carroll is an old and dear and trusted friend. I love Mickey Carroll. Good people. So they came out with approval ratings for our mayor, Bill de Blasio. And see, this is where the media kind of gets away. Hey, Jason, you ever hear the phrase trickeration? <laughs> oh, oh that, that's a Don King phrase. No, actually, that's a reggae phrase. Trickeration. It's like, well, I'll just leave it. It's, it's people playing tricks on people, okay? Here's how, here's how they do this. Now, overall, this mayor has an approval rating of 49% to 36% who disapprove of his work. Among African-Americans, that number jumps to 71% approval, 14% disapproval. Latinos, 56% approval, 27% disapproval. Among whites, 34% approval, 50% disapproval. So what what does the media do? de Blasio losing support among whites. Okay. If you might have wanted to look at the numbers from the last election... Whites weren't all in for him then. (laughs) Okay, let's get real about this. De Blasio's constituency has always been people of color. More interesting, but not talked about, is the gap between his approval ratings among Latinos and his approval rating among African-Americans. There's a 15% difference there. Yeah, it's not as big as the African-American and white disapproval. But why is there a 15% difference between blacks and Latinos? We're all people of color, supposed to be. So what what happened? Why is that different? Doesn't get talked about. Because there's a subtle, and I'm not going to say it's a bias. It's just the way it is. There's a subtle, I guess you, I guess you might say, uh, propensity like that. I majored in English, you know, uh, with focusing on what the white population thinks about a lot of stuff, not just this. <clears throat> and I'm not saying this to be racist or to call anybody a racist. That's not really the point. The point is when the people who control the media are predominantly white, then you're going to get a disproportionate emphasis on the concerns of that population. Why? Because the people who are making the decisions about what to cover are white people. (laughs) 
Okay? I'm not, again, I'm not saying that to be dogmatic or racist or whatever. It's just the way it is. It's a fact. So the gap between blacks and Latinos is ignored. What? 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 What's the problem? Now, it's ignored while at the same time, Latinos on two different occasions this week protested the de Blasio administration over appointments. Not enough Latino appointments. Now, I'm not going to get into an argument about whether they have a case or not. I would point out this, however. Anybody notice Rafael Pinheiro is no longer with the NYPD? I mean, everybody knows Phil Banks. Not as many people noticed Rafael Pinheiro. Latinos have been hollering, and I think legitimately so, to be full participants in the life of New York City and New York State. And they look at a level of participation based on people in positions of power, people that can get things done on the state level and on the city level. And if they don't see Latinos and Latinas in large enough number, they get angry because their votes are going to the people that they believe countenance this lack of representation. It's pretty much as simple as that, folks. So I I just figured I would just throw that out because I, you know, it's amazing to me what the media will cover and what the media under certain circumstances will simply, simply ignore. And speaking of ignoring, uh, there was a temporary and I must say temporary uh, focus placed on Mexico and the Barbarism that took 43 students from a teacher's college and massacred them, seemingly for their political beliefs. And there was a very interesting piece about a week ago by Enrique Krause in the New York Times called Mexico's Barbarous Tragedy. And you massacre 43 people? That is barbarism. And apparently, the massacre was carried out by a criminal gang, Guerreros Unidos. And when they, you know, kind of like arrested some people and tried to find out exactly what the deal is, like, why would you do such a thing? You know what the answer is, Jason? Why they would massacre 43 students? Now, these are 43 progressive-leaning students, but you know what they said? One of the people who were, was arrested for his involvement in this, quote, because they were unruly, unquote. You justify an act of barbarism? By saying people were unruly? What are you, drunk? What are you, insane? Are you off your meds? <laughs> what? This, this, and see, the thing is, the American camera lights have been turned off, all right? Uh, people have moved on. They haven't moved on in Mexico. They're down there protesting like it's Ferguson, okay? They're down there pro- lighting up cars and things, all right? Because <coughs> there are allegations, and I repeat, allegations, that there's some government people involved in all this. All right. So, you know, I say power to the protesters in this instance. But understand that, you know, we stop paying attention. Now, I don't know whether that means that we're so friendly with Mexico, we can overlook this kind of thing. Or, and I hate to say this again, maybe I'm crossing the line here. Do Americans say, well, that's just Mexicans, man. What's the problem? Sorry it happened, but it ain't us. I'm just saying, I don't know that that's the case, but uh, I just wonder. I wonder why it passed so quickly. Hey, uh, how many of you know about, oh, 
let me let me just say this real quick because I'm not going to dwell on this. But there was an article in the Times that says that the insurance industry has suddenly become Barack Obama's best friend because the Affordable Care Act has put billions in the pockets of these giant insurance companies. Jason, why why does that make me nervous? <laughs> why does that why does that make me what the, what? Now he's not running for anything, so I guess he can't personally benefit from this, but. Insurance, the insurance industry and Barack Obama singing Kumbaya somehow sticks in my craw. I'm sorry. I apologize. But I told you all when I started doing this show, if I disagree with the man about something, I'm going to say so. And remember, this is the same guy who used to excoriate, excoriate, whatever, (laughs) the insurance industry every chance he got. And now suddenly it's like, kumbaya, homeboy. No. No. Uh, Are you familiar? You know about Uber, right, Jason? I I just saw one of their cars earlier today driving around. Looks like an ordinary car, right? So this guy, uh, Emil Michael, he's senior vice president for business at Uber. He detailed a plan, according to BuzzFeed News, to hire four top opposition researchers and four journalists to uh, get even with people he thought were uh, covering Uber negatively. Because Uber is kind of like a controversial thing. Because it tests the myriad of rules and regulations regarding transportation in this city. But actually... The person he was going after, I don't even think, is from New York. It's a woman by the name of Sarah Lacey. She runs a technology site called Pando. And she's been an outspoken critic of Uber and the company's chief executive. As soon as the article from BuzzFeed appeared, Emil Michael was moonwalking away. He might have, had, he might have to fall on his sword yet. Uh, He said, the remarks attributed to me at a private dinner born out of frustrations during an informal debate over what I feel is sensationalistic media coverage of the company I am proud to work for do not reflect my actual view. (laughs) Uh, The opinions of this idiot do not reflect those of this idiot. (laughs) What? What? Now, our last segment is called To the Ridiculous. If you thought that guy... Emil Michael from Uber was an idiot. This guy that I'm about to spotlight, a guy named Jason Miller, he's an idiot. He is a New Jersey cop. He's been on the Newton, New Jersey, not Newtown, Newton Police Department. He's been there since 2001. Jason, take a wild guess what this guy did, allegedly. He's been arrested and charged with official misconduct for allegedly unzipping his fly during several traffic stops. <laughs> and he's free on $35,000 bail. He's been charged with lewdness and two count- counts of official misconduct. The guy is married. He's a father of two. And the people he unzipped his fly to were males. I don't know what that And apparently... They got him on tape, and you can hear the fly unzipping. (laughs) Yeah, man. For real. Here, I'll give you a sound effect. Now, this isn't my fly, mind you, but this is what happened. Uh, Sir, license and registration, please. (laughs) How do you do that? How are you that stupid? First of all, you threw away a career. You got to come up with $35,000 bail, which is probably about 3500 bucks cash. Your wife is booking and taking the kids. Enjoy that trailer you're going to end up living in, homeboy, because you, you, you're going to be a pariah. You better move someplace else. Anyway, it's time for me to go. My thanks to Jason Taubenfeld. My thanks to all of you for listening. We won't be here next Wednesday. It's the day before Thanksgiving. And Jason said he's taking the day off, too. But I'll be back two weeks hence. For the Mark Riley Show, I am he. Have yourselves a wonderful evening, a wonderful week ahead, and happy Thanksgiving prematurely. <laughs>